You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello to you all and welcome along to old 94 of this thing. 94, yes. Otherwise known as the international dialing code for Sri Lanka. So how are you all? How's the Christmas shopping going? For the first time in years, I keep forgetting that Christmas is just a few weeks away. What a crazy time it is. But there's always time for some classic movie goodness. And there's always time for a life lesson from a Mexican stereotype. Hello, boys and girls. It's me, the Frito Bandido. You know what I heard about you? If this is to do with my browsing history, then it was all research. I heard you want to be a Frito Bandido like me. Yes, that's what you heard about me. You do? Then you must sing the Bandido song. Let's sing together. You just follow the bouncing Fritos corn chips bag. Ay, yay, yay, yay. I am the Frito Bandido. Hey, I like Fritos corn chips. I love them, I do. I want Fritos corn chips. I'll get them from you. Ay, 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 ay. Oh, I am the Frito Bandito. Give me Frito Bandito, and I'll be be your friend. The Frito Bandito, you must not offend. Slightly chilling threat there at the end. Now, boys and girls, you are Frito Banditos too. Excellent news. And may I say, this is a far more agreeable initiation ceremony than the Freemasons. You sing the Frito Bandito song, and you look for crunchy Fritos corn chips. That's nice. Munch, munch, munchy, bunchy fritos, corn chips. Munch, munchy, bunchy fritos, corn chips. Yes, quite. Well, welcome along, welcome along. I'll be dedicating the latter half of the show to one of the Golden Age's most beloved horror icons. But first, let's have some music from the delightful Charles Trenet. La mer, qu'on voit danser. Le long du golfe clair A des reflets d'argent La mer Des reflets changeants Sous la pluie La mer Au ciel d'été Confond ses blancs moutons Avec les anges La mer, bergère d'azur, infinie. Voyez, près des étangs, ces grands roseaux mouillés. Voyez, ces oiseaux blancs et ces maisons rouillées. Les aperçus le long des golfes clairs et d'une chanson d'amour, la mer a bercé mon cœur pour la vie, la mer qu'on va danser le long. Des golfes clairs, à des reflets d'argent, la mer, des reflets changeants, la pluie, la mer, au ciel d'été, confond ses blancs moutons. Avec les anges si purs, la mer, bergère d'azur, infinie. 
joyeux. Près des étangs, des grands roseaux mouillés. Ses oies de blanc et ses maisons rouillées. La mer, les abeilles, le long des golfes clairs. Il dit une chanson d'amour là-bas. Abeille, c'est mon cœur pour la vie. Superb. Charles Trenet there with La Mer. Be truthful, you sang your little hearts out, right? I did, but because I love you, I muted myself. You are so welcome. Well, it's that time once again where I have the honor of directing your attention to a new edition of The Dark Pages. This is another of their fabled bumper issues, which this time features a look at boxing noir, Body and Soul, with John Garfield, which is very pertinent to me at the moment. There's also a very neat feature called Deadly is the Screen, which tells you all about the younger lives of some famous noir performers. I really liked the Good Girls Gone Noir article, all about some very striking female noir actresses. There's an in-depth look at Kansas City Confidential. White Heat, a review of James M. Cain's final novel, which wasn't published until 2012, plus TCM noir listings, what's coming out on DVD and Blu-ray, and even a quiz. To get your free copy, go to www.allthatnoir.com and do make sure you subscribe. Love the dark pages. As I mentioned there, John Garfield is kind of on my mind at the moment. That's because I have some rather interesting news for you. Classic movie fans in the UK are generally quite passed over when it comes to content. The version of TCM we get here is pretty terrible, but we do get the superb Talking Pictures TV channel, and we are lucky enough to have an incredible monthly magazine in our shops entitled Yours Retro, which is a lovingly curated collection of articles and studies of the entertainment industry of the early 20th century. It's very popular over here. Kind of like a nice version of Entertainment Weekly, but talking about the Golden Age. Well, the editor of Yours Retro, Sharon Reed, got in contact with me in September and asked me if I'd like to contribute an article to the magazine. She'd listened to Hunting Witches with Walt Disney on Audible and was interested in developing something on that theme for the publication, so I of course agreed. And for the past few weeks I've been working on that, and I'm delighted to be able to tell you that the article will be in issue 15 of Yours Retro, which goes on sale December 27th. So if you're near a newsagent on or around that date, hop inside and pick one up. Blades. Uh, what, like lawnmower blades? Can you have plenty? How are you fixed for blades? You better check. Is this like a gang thing? Please make sure you have enough, cause a worn-out blade makes shaving mighty tough. You need to be more specific from the outset. How are you fixed for blades? You better look. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree with you on that as well. Thank you. Managua, Nicaragua is a beautiful town. You buy a hacienda for a few pesos down. You give it to the lady you are trying to win. But her papa doesn't let you come in. Managua, Nicaragua is a heavenly place. You ask a senorita for a little embrace. She answered you, caramba, scramba, bamberito. In Managua, Nicaragua, that's no. I have been to many tropic ports. I might include even Brooklyn. If you're ever feeling out of sorts, I'd like to recommend a look. In Managua, Nicaragua, what a wonderful spot. There's coffee and bananas and the temperature hot. So take a trip and on a ship go sailing away across the aqua to Managua, Nicaragua, Ole.
Nicaragua, what a wonderful spot. There's coffee and bananas and the temperature hot. So take a trip and on a ship go sailing away across the aqua to Managua, Nicaragua. And that was Managua, Nicaragua from Freddie Martin. Kind of an earworm there. So I wanted to shine kind of a spotlight on a certain star this week. One who, if you are into a certain brand of cinema, you'll be very familiar with. In fact, you could say that she's royalty. And when I say royalty, I mean it. She was so good at what she did that she was given the title of Queen by her own studio. Quite the accolade, I'm sure you'll agree. But this particular studio, one of my favourites, was also responsible for shamefully ending her career. The studio in question is Universal, who were responsible for one of the greatest franchises in film history, the Universal Horror Movies. And if, like me, you are a fan of those films, then you will most certainly recognize this screen. That's right, today I would respectfully like to dedicate this episode to one of horror cinema's greatest stars, the queen of the screamers herself, Miss Evelyn Ankers. And before you wonder if my pronunciation of her name is correct, yes it is, many pronounce it Evelyn. She always insisted that her name be pronounced Evelyn. Listening to her in the Universal movies, you may also think that she's a very good apple pie-eating American gal, but you'd be mistaken. She was in fact born to an English family who were at the time living in Chile. Her beginnings were quite auspicious. Unlike many of her contemporaries, Evelyn learned her trade at the Latimer School in London, the Golovin School, the Takamo School of Music and Dramatic Art, and even studied for a while at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. In fact, acting was far less important to her than her beloved ballet. But as her father had run off when she was very young, her somewhat pushy stage mother was keen to monetize her strikingly beautiful daughter, and acting roles flew in from an early age. At the age of 16, she appeared on the very first live British television broadcast, a variety show in which she danced. She was spotted here by Alexander Korda, the famous producer who did his best to make her a star. It was during this time that she studied at RADA, and one of her friends in class was Vivian Lee. Meanwhile, Alexander Korda was casting her in many of his hits, including Rembrandt with Charles Lawton and Fire Over England with Raymond Massey and Vivian Lee herself. In 1938, her big break came and she played the lead in Murder in the Family alongside Jessica Tandy and Roddy McDowell. I've been trying my best to find a copy of this film, but I can't find one anywhere. It sounds brilliant, so I shall keep on looking. Well, this was such a hit that Hollywood spotted her, and in particular, MGM, who for one brief moment wanted her for Goodbye Mr. Chips as Mr. Chipping's wife. She was pipped to the post, though, by Greer Garson, of course, but she was finally on their radar. In fact, so set on a Hollywood career was she now that she decided to pack up her life and go there, as that's where the chances were. But perhaps ominously, considering her future career, terror struck on her Atlantic crossing. As they were sailing the open sea a Nazi submarine suddenly rose from the water ahead and trained its guns upon the ocean liner she was sailing on. All the passengers on board were terrified and even went so far as to make for the lifeboats, but the captain of the ship, a most persuasive man by the sounds of things, hailed the submarine captain and managed to negotiate safe passage across their path. Successful Evelyn Anchors came almost immediately. 20th Century Fox and Universal Studios both made overtures to Evelyn, and out of these two, she chose Fox, who wanted to cast her as the lead in their thriller, Scotland Yard, alongside George Sanders. Now, perhaps if George Sanders had been less temperamental, the screen career of Evelyn Anchors would have taken a very different turn. 
Fox were definitely purveyors of more respectable movies than Universal for sure. A Fox contract usually meant that a performer was taken more seriously, but George Sanders wasn't happy with the script for Scotland Yard. He felt that it made Scotland Yard itself look foolish, and the British nation as a whole look rather provincial and not too bright. And so he turned the role down flat, and in the process, he got suspended for his insubordination. As he was kind of integral to the whole production, Fox began again and ended up casting Mr. Brightonstrangler himself, John Loder, in Sanders' role. But they took so long in rebooting the production that Evelyn Ankers, who still hadn't worked yet, decided that she wanted to get started, and so she took Universal's offer instead. And so her Hollywood debut came in 1941 in a film called Hold That Ghost, starring Abbott and Costello. From here, it was to the horror department for a somewhat stunning run in some classics of the new wave of Universal chillers, beginning with perhaps the most successful of the later phase, The Wolfman. Oh, Wolfman! Even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. So you know that one too, huh? <laughs> of course. Everyone knows about werewolves. <laughs> her turn here as the heroine of the piece, Gwen Conliffe, is perhaps her best-known role. Certainly it set the template for much of her career. A strikingly beautiful figure, generally in love with the cursed star of the film, and who spends a great deal of time screaming. Uh, The Wolfman has been done to death, not least by me in A Universe of Horrors, my secret history series about the universal horrors. But suffice to say, it was the film that made her a star. But it also, unfortunately, kind of stereotyped her. Now, this isn't a bad thing, as she was tremendously good at what she did, but it did limit her appeal slightly, and it didn't allow her the opportunities that many other actresses were getting. However, Evelyn Ankers was rather sanguine about this. In fact, she wasn't all that bothered about being a serious actress. She was far more interesting in simply performing for a living and being happy. And the Universal Horrors certainly allowed her a great deal of both success and happiness in her work. It was just after her success in The Wolfman that she attended a Hollywood bowling tournament at the Sunset Bowling Alley, where several teams from different studios had come for a friendly night of competition. And it was also the place where she met the most important person in her life, the actor Richard Denning. If I could take you up in paradise up above If you would tell me I'm the only one that you love Life could be a dream, sweetheart Hello, hello again Shaboom and hoping we'll meet again Oh, life could be a dream I was under contract to Paramount Pictures, Denning said later And I had a bowling team, Dick Denning's Demons We were having a tournament one night at the Sunset Bowling Alley There were 53 teams and Dick Denning's demons were way up in front. Evelyn Ankers and I had the same publicity agent, and he thought, gee, this is great, I'll see if I can arrange a meeting. So he told me she was anxious to meet me, and I told him that I was anxious to meet her. So I'm bowling, and there's Evie Ankers sitting up in the bleachers with her mother, and all dressed up in a tight black silk dress, and a big picture hat and high-heeled shoes. Anything but a bowling costume. Finally, the publicity agent came down and said, Look, Evie's really getting upset up there. Here you've been anxious to meet her and you haven't even gone up and said hello. So I said, You told me that she was anxious to meet me, so she can sit up there for a bit until I get through with this game. Anyway, I got through and I went up and met her and said, How about joining us in bowling? Never thinking for a minute that she would do it because she's all dressed up. And she said, Sure, I'd love to. Well, she came down in her tight black dress and big hat and she kicked off her high heels and grabbed the ball and bowled. And she ripped her black silk dress right up the side. But as fate would have it, she hit a strike. And I thought if this gal can do that, she's got something. Evelyn Ankers and Richard Denning fell 
quickly in love and eloped to Las Vegas to be married. But instead of marrying in haste and repenting at leisure, it proved to be an enchanted decision. They would spend the rest of their lives together. We celebrated monthly anniversaries, Richard Denning said, looking back on his marriage. Gosh, even after 25 years of marriage, we still exchanged monthly anniversary cards. That was followed by the role of East End heroine Kitty in Sherlock Holmes and the Voice of Terror, alongside Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce. And with that, we arrive at the first film I'd like to tell you about today. Germany Broadcasting, Germany Broadcasting, people of Britain, greetings from the Third Reich. This is the voice you have learned to fear. This is the voice of terror. Again, we bring you disaster, crushing, humiliating disaster. It is folly to stand against the mighty wrath of the Fuhrer. Do you need more testimony of his invincible might to bring you to your knees? Very well. Are you ready, operative number seven? This is the voice of terror. England is under siege, not just from Nazi bombers, but also an insidious Nazi voiceover artist. Yes, a mysterious voice has been broadcasting on British radio, forecasting disasters about to befall the nation and generally spreading fear among the populace. The Intelligence Council have drafted in Sherlock Holmes to not just discover the identity of the Voice of Terror, but to put him to an end. And Holmes's inquiries lead him to the squalid, crime-infested district of Limehouse, where he meets and enlists the heroic Kitty, played by Evelyn Ankers. I don't want nothing to do with it, nor with you. I never had any dealings with the police, and I won't start now. I'm not asking this for myself. Our country, England, is at stake. Evan was killed not by his own enemies, not even mine, but by the enemies of England. So that's it. Yes, Kitty. The Nazis killed him. Help me to find out what Christopher means, and I promise the man who murdered Gavin shall pay for it. Okay, so we all know that Sherlock Holmes didn't ever fight the Nazis in the Conan Doyle stories. He was from an era way before that. But as the new Sherlock TV series has proved, the character works in pretty much every time, and it was remarkably creative of Universal to shuttle him into contemporary times. Everyone credits Sherlock with being so revolutionary in doing this, but always remember that it was Universal and Basil Rathbone who first pulled off that feat. As to the film itself, there are other better examples of Universal home stories, but this is not the worst of the bunch by far. The villain, played by Thomas Gomez, strikes all the right notes, even if he isn't as memorable as Henry Daniel's Moriarty. The period setting is also very well caught, and the scenes in Limehouse are delightful. Also, we get a real sense of Holmes as a detective. Whether it's slowly formulating the real reason behind the Voice of Terror's broadcasts, or studying the differences in radio waves, or delivering an updated version of his famous East Wind speech at the film's close, he really does prove his detective jobs here, which is sometimes lost in these Universal Holmes films. The cast also is impeccable. You have the aforementioned Henry Daniel as a cabinet minister who may or may not be something more sinister. You have the great Reginald Denny as a cabinet minister who may or may not be something more sinister. You have Harry the Henchman Cording as a Limehouse murderer. You have Mary Gordon as Mrs. Hudson. Hilary Brooke, who'd go on to be a Holmes villain herself later on. And of course, the marvellous Evelyn Ankers as Kitty, who's perhaps the most interesting character in the whole thing. She starts off as this very downtrodden supporting player, just the girlfriend of an unfortunate who's murdered while helping Holmes, and who actually ends up saving England. There's a marvellous scene in which she single-handedly changes the mind of every low-life cutthroat in a seedy bar, who all start off wanting to throw Holmes out on his ear. I'm not asking this for myself. England's at stake. You're England as much as anyone else's. No time to think about whose side we're on. There's only one side, England. No matter how high or how low we are. You, you, you and you. We're all on the same team. We've all got the same goal. Victory! No, you're what do you want to know? Spread out all over London. But find out what Christopher means. We'll find out. No fear about that. Thank you, Peter. Well done, my dear. She goes from this to full undercover agent, acting as a consort 
to the villain of the piece, even shacking up with him under Holmes' instructions in order to discover the Nazi plot. And at the film's climax, which was filmed on the old Dracula set, well, I won't spoil it for you, but it's most certainly Kitty who saves the day. So if you've written off the Universal Holmes films because they play a little loosely with the Holmes legend, then you really are doing yourself something of a disservice, and Sherlock Holmes and the Voice of Terror is one of the good ones. So do give it a try, even if it's so that you can stake your claim as an Evelyn Anchors completionist. In fact, Nigel Bruce, Evelyn's co-star in the film, was something of a flirt when it came to Miss Anchors, in a charming, non-threatening way, of course, as he was happily married to his wife, Bunny, but they did become the best of pals. Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce had a great sense of humour, Richard Denning said later, especially Nigel Bruce, and he could identify with Evie's English background. They had a lot of fun. One time I came on their set, I was in the Navy at the time, and I had my tight dress blues on. Nigel and Evie were sitting talking and I came over just to say hello. Well, Nigel turned around to me and said to Evie, Oh, my dear girl, your husband has the most enormous uh, personality I've ever seen. So 1943 was a very busy year for Anchors. Not only did she diversify a little with All By Myself, a comedy of all things, but she also went seriously left field with a starring role in the quite ridiculous but endlessly enjoyable Captive Wild Woman. She is the love interest of the lead here, battling for the heart of her man, and her love rival is in fact... A gorilla who turns into a woman who turns into a hairy gorilla woman and who can control wild animals by staring at them. And she wears a bikini. It's amazing. Then we have the lead role in The Ghost of Frankenstein, which was a mistake because when the Universal Monster Rallies began a little while later, which saw literally Frankenstein meeting the Wolfman, the producers were faced with a bit of a quandary. Evelyn had played the lead, Gwen Conliffe, in The Wolfman, and she played the female lead in The Ghost of Frankenstein, so which role would she play in this, a meeting of the two? The answer was neither. Her role was recast to avoid confusion, which only added to the confusion. Never mind, though, because she was far too busy making Son of Dracula, my personal pick as the worst universal horror movie ever, and she was making The Mad Ghoul. What an interesting room. Right. It's a miniature museum. It's a modest enough collection, but it has the virtue of authenticity. What's that? Well, that's Jocko, the miracle monkey. He was a great service to us in the lab today, so we thought he deserved a share in the celebration. Oh. Absolutely. This is one of the universals that's often overlooked, perhaps because its central monster, a kind of living zombie, was definitely not as memorable as Dracula or the Wolfman, etc. So the basic story is of Dr. Morris, played by George Zuko, who falls in love with Isabel Lewis, played by Evelyn Ankers, who's a singer. The problem is that Isabel is engaged to be married to Dr. Morris's assistant, Ted. Things are further complicated by the fact that Isabel has fallen out of love with Ted and into love with her pianist Eric, played by Turhan Bay. Things are even further complicated when Dr. Morris misunderstands something Isabel tells him and believes that she's in love with him. In some ways, Ted is only a child. In his field, he is brilliant, but his field is narrow. For you, music has opened up a great new world. You've travelled, you've outgrown him. Yes. Yes, you're right. It's perfectly natural now that you should turn to a more sophisticated man. A man who could share your great joy in music. A man who knows the book of life and could teach you how to read it. And things are even further, further complicated when Dr. Morris decides to kill his love rival Eric by using an ancient Mayan nerve gas to turn Ted into a zombie and ordering him to murder. That is the plot. Now you're interested, right? Now listen carefully. You understand me? Answer me. I understand you. Good. I'm your friend, your only friend. You're ill, you need me. I alone can cure you. You'll do everything I say. 
Everything you say. I mean, I hardly know where to start with this. Firstly, the thing I was instantly struck by is how gruesome this film is. There's a scene, for instance, where Dr. Morris and Ted the zombie attack a gravedigger in a cemetery, and after knocking him out, they literally cut out his heart while he's alive. Then there's Ted himself, and while the makeup job that turns him into one of the undead isn't the flashiest piece of work ever done, it is kind of nasty to see a man with flaky skin cutting hearts out of chests. By the way, you know when Ted's a zombie and when he isn't, because when he is a zombie, he has Ringo Starr hair. I have to say, George Zuko, obviously he played a lot of villains. It's so weird to see him here as a romantic antagonist, albeit an evil one. As a character, though, I did wonder at times why he was bothering to turn poor old Ted into zombie Ted. He kind of wastes him a little bit. He turns him into zombie Ringo Ted and marches him off to a graveyard to steal a heart, or more specifically, the heart juice, so that he can turn zombie Ted back into not zombie Ted. Plus, it's not like he sends him off to do his bidding. He literally walks around with zombie Ted pointing to things that zombie Ted has to do, like picking up cups and cutting out hearts and things. Surely it'd be quicker to just do it yourself, Zuko. Unless he, like, needed Ted to leave his fingerprints everywhere or something. So Zombie Ted turns out to be this big, lumbering fingerprint machine with Ringo Star hair. I do love the other characters, though. There's a reporter called Scoop McClaw. So God bless the McClaw family for bestowing that name upon their descendant. And of course, Evelyn Anchors is very, very good. The whole love triangle she's involved in makes her seem a little unsympathetic at first. But as it plays out, you really do get the feeling that she's not some vamp who loves to break men's hearts. She's just a girl who realizes her heart lies elsewhere and regretfully tries to put things right, but fails. She does pick them, though, doesn't she? She's got a mad doctor and a zombie in love with her. So come for the love story, but stay for the zombies. And for yet another star turn from Evelyn Anchors. Oh, and for the just fantastic ancient Mayan drawings of a nerve gas attack. No, really, wait till you see them. Incredibly, considering the trail she blazed through the studio in her first two years, she was to last just one more year at Universal. In 1944, she had quite the run, starring in Jungle Woman, The Invisible Man's Revenge, Ladies Courageous, The Pearl of Death, Bowery to Broadway, The Frozen Ghosts, and perhaps the best of her Universal roles, that of the villain in Weird Woman. Another one of those delightfully literal titles about women that seemed so prevalent. Weird Woman was part of the Inner Sanctum series, all of which starred Lon Chaney Jr. and which generally centred around a murder plot with supernatural overtones and all featuring an inner monologue from Chaney at some point, hence the title. This was a gimmick that was supposed to put the viewer directly alongside the thought process of the protagonist as he's first suspected, and sometimes cleared, of the murder at the film's centre. So it was with Weird Woman, arguably the most successful of the run, mainly because it featured Cheney slightly less than usual. He is horribly miscast here as a suave, hyper-intelligent university professor who meets and falls in love with an exotic, black-magic-obsessed forest girl called Paula. Yes, even in the furthest reaches of the South Seas, they still had the good sense to call their kids Paula from time to time. What are you doing? Well, what is that? Why hell you my name? He's trying to tell you it's a line you must not cross. All who do so offer themselves a sacrifice to the god, Ka'una Ana'ana, and they must die. Oh, I see. Thank you. Well, when Professor Reed arrives back in the good old USA with his bride, he expects to begin the next happy chapter in his life, but instead is faced with hostility and suspicion. The lion's share of this comes from Ilona, played by Evelyn Ankers, who was in love with Reed before he left, and who's now feeling awfully hard done by. Norman, you don't have to be afraid of me. Let me work with you. Things, things don't have to be any different, do they? But they are different. I'm married now. All right, so you're married. I'll forgive you that. If you were a little dull, I grew up in the jungle. It's all right. Can't I get it through your head that I'm in love with my wife? You were fond of me once. 
Ilona, you're out of your mind. Maybe I am. I don't care. I don't even care anymore what people are saying, laughing at oh, me. Oh, stop it. I never asked for such devotion from you, and I don't want it. Now, stop being melodramatic. Ilona puts into action a campaign of slander and deceit, slowly convincing the community that Paula is a witch out to harm their lives and that Reed is a serial philanderer who deserves to be ostracized. And as the whispers grow, so too does the pressure on Reed and Paula. The whole story comes to a head when Reed, frustrated by the rumors, and terrified of his wife's superstitious methods of dealing with them, burns her protective charms, unwittingly making things a whole lot worse. Norman, no! The turban of a high priestess. Stake stones, jungle gods. You don't know what you're doing! I do! Norman, no! This story might sound familiar to you. That's because it's based on a novel called Conjure Wife by Fritz Lieber, and it's been filmed several times, first here as Weird Woman, then in 1962 as Night of the Eagle, and then again in 1980 as Witch's Brew. I'm not a huge fan of the Inner Sanctum films. The whole inner monologue bit gets very old very quickly, and the mysteries are a little turgid. Plus, Lon Chaney is great in lots of things, but he's miscast several times in this series. The exception, though, is this film, Weird Woman which plays less like a murder mystery and more like a cautionary tale about the dangers of gossip and how one person's vendetta can really destroy a whole community. You start by imagining that the horror element is going to come from Paula and her mystical ways, but you grow to realize that the real terror comes from how easy it is for Ilona to casually destroy several lives with just a few well-chosen words. You've got to do something to make her leave Monroe. Leave Norman if necessary. If you don't, Millard will never get that sociology chairmanship. She'll see to that. She'd sacrifice everyone just for the sake of her precious Norman. Evelyn Ankers was always the heroine of her films, which makes her turn here even more surprising. It's such a great role. It's so complex. It's so calculating. And it's so downright evil. And she pulls it off magnificently. The climax, which I won't spoil for you, is remarkably chilling, and you're left wondering what other triumphs she could have had if she hadn't just been asked to kiss the lead and scream from time to time. She is magnetically good in this, far outperforming the bland Cheney and Anne Gwyn as Paula. The only other cast member who comes close to stealing the film is Elizabeth Russell, who you'll recognize best from Cat People. She played the Serbian lady in the restaurant who approaches Simone Simon. She plays the wife of a fellow professor here, who's driven to suicide by Ilona's rumors, and she's so good that the filmmakers wisely chose to make her and Ilona their focus in the last third. So if you've been burned by the other Inner Sanctum films, such as Pillow of Death... And Death! <laughs> or Strange Confession, or Dead Man's Eyes, or something, then do go back in and try Weird Woman. It's very good. Now, I like Universal Studios, you know I do. I made an entire Secret History series about them. But the way they treated their Queen of the Screamers in 1945 was appalling. While starring as a stripper in Bowery to Broadway, she suddenly gasped and clutched her stomach. The crew thought it was indigestion, but Evelyn knew better. Her baby had just decided to kick for the first time. Well, when the studio brass found out, they terminated her contract immediately. It was against the rules to have a baby, unless decreed by the bosses. Yes, things were really like that in 1945. The thing was, Evelyn Ankers didn't mind all that much. Richard Denning was coming home from the war and screen acting hadn't turned out to be the dazzling career that she dreamed it would be. She took a few roles for other studios such as Republic and ironically 20th Century Fox. But what she longed for more than anything else was a quiet home and time with her family. Her final film role came in 1950 as Calamity Jane in Columbia's pretty awful the Texan meets Calamity Jane, and when it was over, she swore not to go back. 
Richard Denning continued to work, but Evelyn elected to stay at home and support her husband's career as it carried on throughout the 50s. They eventually settled in Hawaii, where they lived with their daughter Dee, who grew up to give them two grandchildren, over whom Evelyn doted. A picture postcard example of a successful Hollywood marriage. It was really odd for unions to last so long, especially in Hollywood, but Evelyn and Denning were genuinely in love and their marriage lasted for over 40 years. Evie's illness lasted two years, Richard Denning said later. It started with internal cancer. She went through all the chemotherapy, just horrible. Near the end, Evie said, I just want to go up to our country place and be out there alone with you and wait until the good Lord calls me. So we went there in the country from May until the end. We both prayed that the Lord would take her and relieve her because I was giving her shots every half hour for the pain and it was horrible. She was so weak. Yet I think the greatest time of our marriage was those last three months. We were alone we had plenty of time to think about the 43 years of being together. The good, the bad, the prosperous, the not so prosperous. The things we'd gone through together, and we felt closer, I think, in those last months than we did even on our honeymoon. It's a feeling you only get after sharing your life, your joys, your problems, everything, together. Well, for all you Evelyn Anchors fans, I have a special radio treat for you. In 1950, she had the good fortune to appear on the radio thriller anthology show Obsession, which was a descendant of sorts to Suspense. The episode in which she starred is called On the Wild Seas, and I'm delighted to be able to present it to you now. So buckle up for half an hour of thrills with the Queen of the Screamers herself, Miss Evelyn Anchors. And I'll see you on the other side. What of subconscious thoughts that dwell in darkness and shadow? What of reckless desires that take root in the soil of envy and flower in crime? We can give the world a face free of lurking malice. But back in the dim recesses of our mind crouch the age-old instinct ready to destroy. And so to our story, starring Evelyn Anchor. The deep green waves dash with wild, trusting arms upon the stern rocks of the New England shore. Silhouetted against the slate sky is the outline of a house, Huntley House. And the girl in our story, Maxine Stark, must have regretted her visit to this home above the sea because back of her smiling and friendly face was a grim and growing obsession. At the time, it seemed the right thing. You see, Teresa Huntley was my twin sister. We were worlds apart socially. <laughs> in fact, we had mutually refused to see or speak to each other for ten years. She had been through a tragedy, and I was with my husband, Dudley, on one of his trips I couldn't avoid. He was a beer salesman. We were in Maine, and I insisted that we drive over to the coast to see my sister. The last few miles, the road was very bumpy, and my husband was worse than the road. Oh, why in the Sam Hill are we going over here anyway? Because I want to. Uh, drive to the ends of the earth? And for what? She is my sister, you know. Well, I've never heard you brag about that before. Well, there are times. After all, she did just lose her husband. And what's that to you? I'm thinking of Teresa. Maybe her husband meant something to her. Huh. Thanks. Oh, Daddy, let's not argue. Well, who's arguing? I just think it's stupid. What'd your sister ever do for you? Who knows? Maybe she'll have a change of heart. Finally, we arrived at Huntley Hearts. Teresa had certainly done well. 
It was a charming place. Not too big, but with a touch of elegance everyone dreams of. The house ran almost to the beach with the ocean beyond. And there were flowers, lots of them, alongside the house, protected from the wind by a heavy, thick concrete wall. It was lovely. We knocked at the door. Even after ten years, Teresa didn't seem surprised. Well, come in, Maxine. Teresa, this is my husband, Dudley. Glad to know you, Mrs. Huntley. How do you do? Say, I can't get over it. Get over what? How much you two look alike. Oh, what did you expect? Uh, My husband and I were traveling by this way. I heard what had happened, so... Well, I I thought we'd drive over. I had a premonition you were coming. Now I suppose you'll want to straighten up a bit after your trip. It's right upstairs there. Thank you. Dudley and I walked upstairs. I got my first glimpse of the interior. What I saw made me green with envy. Sipping there, the Dresden over the fireplace. <laughs> Teresa always did have such marvelous taste. How was a picture. Dudley must have been thinking the same thing as we dressed for dinner. Some joint she's got here. Dudley, please remember where you are. Now, what did I say? Well, don't joint the place up oh, so. All right, all right. I know how to handle myself. We went downstairs and had dinner. It was very uncomfortable. There was deadly blundering all over the place. And Teresa. Prim starched Teresa. And not too friendly. After dinner, it got so late she had to ask us to stay all night. Dudley went to bed early. While Teresa and I had a little chat in the living room. Ten years is a long time, Maxine. Yes, it is. I think it was very nice of you to come. Even though it took a death to bring you. I'm glad it pleases you, Teresa. There was no other reason, was there? Of course not. No, I didn't come to ask you for anything. Ten years haven't changed you much, Maxine. (laughs) Nor you. After what I've gone through this last month, that's a compliment. You do miss your husband, don't you? Yes, I miss Edward very much. Poor fellow, we couldn't even give him a decent burial. What happened? He'd been working in his garden. He loved his garden. Decided to go for a swim. I watched him. He was well beyond the breakers when the riptide hit him. He screamed for help. I was powerless. We're five miles from anyone here. You know how I'm afraid. I've always been afraid of the water. I'll make sure if you've just been here that day. She broke off. Finally excused herself. Thought she was going to bed, but a moment later I saw her walking down on the beach. She came up at the sea as if, as if imploring it to return her husband. I went up to our room feeling almost a little bit sorry for Terry. Dudley was still awake. Well, what'd she say? Well, she was talking about her husband. Huh. She certainly wasn't very glad to see us, was she? Well, I think she was, in a way. Well, who knows? You're her only sister. Maybe you'll get yours someday. I don't want anything from her. Oh, not much you don't. You'll have to play your cards smart, though. Oh, why don't you go to sleep? All right, all right. I still can't get over how much you and your sister look alike. time Dudley had said that, and the words revolved in my mind. I went over and opened the shutters of the window. The evening was fresh and cool. I thought of my sister and I. Never had been much love between us, I mean. Only a question of who got what. I walked back to the bed. Dudley was asleep. I thought to myself, in spite of everything, Teresa had got hers. Prim, starched Teresa had won. The next morning, I got up late. After breakfast, I found Teresa in the flower garden, which was protected from the wind by that heavy cement wall. Good morning, Maxine. Good morning, Teresa. You look as if you rested well. 
I should. I've been on sleeping tablets ever since it happened. Oh. <laughs> Your garden is lovely. It was Everett's garden. He's very proud of it. He even built the cement wall here. He just finished it. What do you uh, plan to do? Oh, I don't know. I may take a trip later on. And sell the house? Oh, no, never. Everett thought too much of the house. If I do go, I'll lock it up. But there's still all of Everett's business affairs to clear up. Those things are always hard for a woman. Oh, no. Everett's friend at the bank in town, David Corkley. He's been wonderful. He's taken over completely. Teresa, I... I want you to know something. What? Well, we've never been very close as sisters, and it's... It's hard for me to say this, but... If there's anything that... That's very kind of you. And coming here as you did, you already expressed that. Maxine, why don't you and Dudley stay on over the weekend? Thank you. That would be very nice. Dudley was right. Perhaps if I played my cards smart. That afternoon, I decided to take a swim in the ocean. Put on a suit, and as I approached the terrace facing the beach, I heard Dudley babbling about something to correct. <laughs> oh, this is the life. This is for me. You like it here at the beach, do <laughs> uh, uh, I don't care if I never write another beer order in my life. Well, Maxine, your husband likes it here. So I understand. You're going for a swim? Yes. Anyone care to join me? No, not me. How about you, Dudley? Not me. I swim like a rock. You're in my class. <laughs> As I walked down to the water, I noticed the house faced a cove. And there was a mooring out into the water with a small sailboat tied up at the end. There's ever that kept it there during the summer months. I hit the water and took a long turn way out past the breakers. When I returned, the terrace was empty. I dried off and walked to the door. And stopped at the sound of a man's voice. I recognized it first. And as I listened, I realized it was David Cotton to whom Teresa. It's so nice to see you. Well, I'm sorry I haven't been up to Teresa. I've been terribly busy. But say, you're looking wonderful. Thank you. Believe me, for the first time, I believe you're coming around to my way of thinking. You've been getting some sun. Yes, I have. Well, that's good. That's good for you. But say, I um, I noticed a car in the driveway as I came in. That belongs to Maxine, my sister. Your sister. Yes, she and her husband are here for a few days. <laughs> I dare say that now I've come into all of Everett's money, I'm certain to be plagued by relatives. That was all I needed to hear. Teresa would never change. <laughs> Teresa, who had always coveted and always won. Or had she? Suddenly a plan evolved. Out of what Dudley had repeated many times since our visit to Huntley House. I could just change places with her. Oh, but I don't know, Maxine. I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? You said you liked it here, didn't you? Yeah, Maxine, but... How can we ever go back to what we had, knowing... Knowing all this is here for us? Well, I don't know. I'm afraid. Think what we would have. Just think what would be ours. The house. Her money. Freedom. All the things you've wanted and I've wanted. Yeah, but this is murder. Murder, Dudley, it's merely retribution. The retribution she deserves. But how? That's the easiest part. I needed Dudley for my plans. Oh, how I needed him. That night, we waited until well after Teresa had gone to bed. And we slipped up to her bedroom. I knew she practically knocked herself out with sleeping pills every night. We opened the door, crept into the room... We had her gagged and her arms bound almost before she woke up. Then Dudley held her while I began the transfer. My rings and my wristwatch and a locket with my name inscribed on it. We carried her downstairs, down to the mooring, into the sailboat. Dudley spoke the first word. Maxine, are, are you sure you know how to say this thing? Of course, get in. There was a good thing. She sailed out quickly. About half a mile offshore, we untied Teresa and pushed her over the side. The train was lost in the sound of the heavy sound. And now we return to the story on the wild sea in the shadow of Huntley House, starring Evelyn Anchors. 
I did have a feeling of elation as I stood beside my husband, studying a sailboat, watching the glimmer of a white cat which a moment before had been my sister. But the sense of elation somehow was not complete. I, I thought of my plan. It worked splendidly. Suddenly it didn't help, but, but now he was nervous. Maxine, don't you think we'd better be heading back? All right. Uh, and quickly, there's a boat over there. Where? Uh, ahead of us. Oh, she's miles away. was the outline of the boat with running lights clear in the moonlight. But she was far away. We came about and headed back to the cove. About a quarter of a mile from the shore, I ducked below. My plan was nearly completed. I opened the sea clock, jumped up on deck, and was in the water before Dudley realized what was happening. What are you doing, Maxine? What are you doing? Come back! Don't leave me here! before I notified the authorities that the boat was missing. I knew that neither Teresa nor Dudley could swim. It would be over quickly. And I called David Corton, Teresa's counselor since her husband's death. He rushed out to the house immediately. He was to be the first test in my new role. And he was easier than I expected. Oh, David. I got her as quickly as I could, Teresa. It's terrible, David. They've been gone nearly six hours now. There, there. The Coast Guard searching by boat and by plane. I'm sure they're all right. But uh, tell me, what happened? Well, Maxine and her husband decided on the spur of the moment to to go on a moonlight sail. Did either of them know anything about a boat? Of course, Maxine handled the boat marvelously. She did practically nothing else but swim and sail when we were youngsters. Well, then, there's nothing to worry about. The very calm sea tonight. Yes, I... I never would have let them go otherwise. Oh... David, I... There, there, now. You've certainly had your share these past weeks. But don't worry. If they're in trouble, they'll be picked up. His words upset me. There was the other boat that night, but... But the day passed. Only two days. Oh, I felt relieved. The afternoon of the second day, I got a sudden phone call from David. I was prepared for that, too, but... Not quite all of it. I have bad news for you, Teresa. A fishing boat has just brought in the body of a woman. It's evidently... Oh, no, David. Yes. It seems the boat did go down. Oh, oh how terrible. I suppose I... I should come in and arrange for the body. No, I'll do that. But won't they want me to identify her? Oh, no. No, they'll do that merely by taking fingerprints. I certainly wasn't prepared for that, nor for what followed in a few hours. Summoned by the police in town. David picked me up. He certainly was understanding as we sat in the waiting room at the police station. We won't be long, I'm sure. What is it they want? I don't know. They just said to bring you down. You may go in now. Thank you. Yes, Lieutenant? Sit down. You're, uh, Mrs. Huntley? Yes. Mrs. Huntley, I called you down here. I want a complete report of what happened the other night. Certainly. I suppose after what I tell you, you won't be interested in seeing the body. No. At least I know if I were in your shoes, I wouldn't be interested. Why not? The body had deteriorated, so we were unable to identify it with fingerprints. Can you uh, identify these? This locket, these rings? Oh, yes. Yes, 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 those were Maxine's. Oh, my dear sister. I made the report as the police requested. And a week or so later, we held Teresa's funeral. We never did find Dudley's body. Then I returned to Huntley House, but... As the days passed by, it, it became oppressive. What had been so lovely before, the, the house, the beach, the garden with the cement wall shielded against. All too quickly became the storehouse of memories I I wanted to lose. Then I 
I mulled over an idea. And finally, I made up my mind. I called David, and he came out immediately. Come on in, David. Won't you sit down? Thank you, Teresa. You know, Dolores, so good to see you. Is it? Need I tell you? David, I'm going to take a trip. Excellent. Wonderful idea. Bermuda, England, France. How does it sound to you? Well, I think it's the only thing. Tell me when you want to leave, and I'll make all the arrangements. Well, I'd, I'd like to go as quickly as possible. Well, no sooner said than done. One other thing, David. Hmm? I've decided to sell the house. Really? Yes. Oh. Isn't that rather a change? I thought you said you'd never sell it. You mean everything, don't you? He loved it so. Well, that he did. David, Everett was your best friend, wasn't he? My very best. As you knew him, do you think he would want me to live here after what has happened? No, I dare say he wouldn't. I'll post it for sale. You'll have no trouble selling it, I'm sure. And I'll arrange you the finest accommodations for your trip to Europe. David was so kind. So very thoughtful. <laughs> I almost believed that he liked me. Or maybe it was because of Edward. I sold Huntley House the next day. People who bought it simply loved it. I upset the cement wall by the flower bed. <laughs> they said it destroyed the view and that they were going to tear it down. They moved in practically as I moved out. When I arrived at the station to take the train to New York... David was waiting for me with a beautiful corsage. Thoughtful as always. This is for you. Oh, thank you, David. It's beautiful. Now, I want you to have a wonderful rest. You'll be in New York a few days before you sail. I will. Yes, I thought you might want to do some shopping. Oh, you think of everything. You know, Teresa, I'm glad to miss you. Really? Very much. I want you to know that. Oh. I shall miss you too, David. Call me back, won't you? Yes, I, I will, David. The trip to New York was marvelous. <laughs> Especially after the memory of David standing there at the station and what he had said. Oh, I had a glorious shopping spree. And the date for sailing came around almost too quickly. I'd been on board an hour since the ship had left the port of New York when there was a knock on my cabin door. Come in. You're Mrs. Huntley? That's right. Uh, Sergeant Burns, New York, please. You'll come with me, please. They rushed me off to the station. No one would say anything. I had no idea what was happening or what, what had happened. Then they, they put me in a room alone. Suddenly the door opened... And David walked in. I rushed over to him. David, what's happened? Keep your hands off of me. David, what's the matter? You think, Teresa, that I was falling in love with you. David, please. Please don't stand there like that. Tell me, what's happened? You know what happened. You were there that last day with Everett. Everett? Well, weren't you? Weren't you with him there alone? Yes. Didn't you hear him there in that riptide? And didn't you hear his cries? Yes, I tried, yes. Teresa, you should never have sold Humphrey House. Why? What do you mean? The new owner tore down that cement wall Everett had been building to protect his flowers. The new owner found Everett's body embedded in the cement. How could you ever do it, Teresa? How could you ever murder him? And that was the queen of the screamers herself, Miss Evelyn Ankers. Not Evelyn, as the announcer kept saying that. Well, that's it from me for this show and for Attaboy Clarence for a little while. I'm off on a brief break to go and make the new Secret History of Hollywood episode. But I'll be back very soon. In the meantime, I'll be bringing a bonus Attaboy show every other week to patrons, so keep them peeled for that. You can follow me on Twitter at at AttaboyC or at Movie Histories for updates. I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash attaboyclarence. If you have two minutes spared, do drop into iTunes and give the show a rating. Always helps. Along with bonus Attaboy shows, there are ebooks and previews and all kinds of things over at patreon.com slash attaboysecret, where you can also join in with our monthly film club nights. Come and vote on a movie to watch and chat along with us all while we watch The Blighter. 
many more bonuses and things by signing up as a patron. If you're interested, listen on to the end of this show. So thank you all, my lovelies. I'll be back with you very soon. But until then, take awfully good care of yourselves. And bye for now. If you'd like to support this show, you can do so by going to www.attaboyclarence.com and clicking on the Patreon banner. Pledges start from as little as $1 a month, and in return you'll receive exclusive emails, bonus episodes, previews, and e-books. And every dollar pledged goes towards making these shows better and more frequent. Go to www.attaboyclarence.com or click the link in the show notes now to become a patron. Thank you. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.